We've known since 2006, when Nicholas Stern published his exhaustive 700-page Stern Review on the economics of climate change, that it will cost us trillions of dollars to fix the climate mess, but hundreds of trillions to not fix it. More recently, a paper called Global Nonlinear Effect of Temperature on Economic Production, <laughs> what a title, concluded that if we keep doing what we're doing, that is, emitting greenhouse gases on the assumption that we can just adapt our way out of it, the global economy, which currently grows every year except in recessions, will probably shrink by 23% in the next 80 years as farms collapse and waters rise and rich people retreat into armed bunkers while the rest of us eke out a living on a barren earth. The numbers may be off, and most certainly are, but the scenario almost always plays out the same. And the fact is that we simply cannot adapt to climate change, not at the rate it's going. We have to end it, and we have to reverse it, which is one reason I'm a huge fan of cap-and-trade. Namely, you put a cap on emissions, make companies and people pay for going over that cap, and you funnel the money into technologies that absorb greenhouse gases, like trees. Everyone loves trees. Natural climate solutions. That's what I'm mostly about, and that's why I launched this podcast in 2016. But there is a downside to cap and trade. Namely, it will make fossil fuel energy more expensive which means it will drive up energy prices in the short term until we finally transition to cleaner, cheaper sources. That's why a lot of people, including today's guest, a young physicist named Daniel Palkin, are advocating a so-called fee-and-dividend approach, where you slap a fee on all fossil fuels, not at the point where we use them, not at the pump, but at the point where they're produced, where they enter the economy. The fee will be based on the amount of greenhouse gas, that the coal, gasoline, and jet fuels ultimately generate when we burn them. So it initially has the same drawback as cap-and-trade. Namely, it makes everything more expensive. Not just the gas we buy, but the boxes we ship, the food we transport, etc. Stern argued that every penny we spend to reduce emissions now will come back to us 20-fold in the future. And that's the argument I've always used. But it clearly doesn't work on everyone. A fee-and-dividend approach doesn't funnel the money into climate solutions, but sends it back to citizens in the form of a dividend, hence the name. Basically, we each pay into the system based on how much fossil fuel energy we consume. And let's face it, rich people consume more than poor people do, so they'll pay more. But every single citizen gets the same dividend back. If you ride your bike to work every day, you won't just save money at the tank, but you'll make a profit on the deal. And by the way, the actual cost on a gallon of gas isn't that high, as you'll soon see. Again, this is nothing new. The idea has been around a while, and California already funnels some money from its cap-and-trade program into poor communities. So the concept of somehow taking the sting out of higher fuel prices is already being applied. The downside, namely that fee and dividend isn't funneling money into solutions like saving forests or helping farmers shift to climate-smart agriculture, well, that gnaws at me. But nothing's perfect, and it's not a panacea. It's not meant to be the magic bullet that fixes everything. 
Those of us who really want to become carbon neutral can, in fact, buy carbon offsets to offset the emissions that we can't eliminate. We'll still need to revive nature and expand carbon sinks. And I, for one, will continue to offset my emissions, even if I know the oil company paid a fee for them. And as more people wake up to the enormity of the challenge, more will do the same. Hell, maybe we can even use our dividends to buy offsets. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Daniel Palkin, today's guest, works with the Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL. They're backing a bill called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which is built on a fee and dividend approach, an approach that Palkin says has broad support across the political spectrum. And he has the data to back it up. The support among GOP voters under 40 years old was 75 percent. It, it was almost identical to the, the support among Democratic voters. So young GOP voters, independent of whether their politics align with the Trumpist worldview or the Bob Inglis worldview or anyone else, have a strong desire not only to, to see climate change solved, but actually will, will, when asked, say that exactly the policy we're talking about is, is one that they can get behind. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that impact through a lens that we normally leave for the mainstream outlets, namely through the lens of fossil fuel reductions instead of natural climate solutions. Today's guest, Daniel Palkin, is a conservative outreach fellow for the Citizens Climate Lobby. I caught up to him just as he was getting ready for a trip to Washington, where he hoped to get conservative lawmakers engaged in the climate challenge. He is, as I mentioned before, a physicist by training, and I started out by asking him how he got involved in this. Yeah, so I'm uh, actually not in the climate space by background. I did my undergraduate at Bowdoin College in Maine in physics uh, and English, and then I decided to pursue a PhD in physics, thinking I wanted to go into a research or teaching role at some point. And what kind of got to me was the politics that just took place over the, the time that I was incidentally doing my PhD. It seemed that, especially in 2015 and in the buildup to the last election, I found myself distressed, not in a, in a partisan way necessarily, just kind of by the, the ambient noise in our politics and uh, what people had to say about other people in our country. 
And I was looking for an outlet for that. And one outlet for many scientists might just be, well, the work I'm doing is, is very valuable and contributes to something which will will solve an immediate problem of humanity. And I had the opposite problem. I do dark matter research, <laughs> which I, I do because I find it really interesting. I, I genuinely want to know what's out there and what makes up most of our universe. And so I remember first reading about it in high school. Right. And there was a point where my high school self would have been very proud to see my graduate school self working on the problem. But it, it got to the point where I felt like I was working very hard and applying myself to a problem that we could solve tomorrow, best case scenario, unlikely. And it wouldn't alleviate any of the stresses that were that were kind of causing our society to seemingly buckle in front of me. And so I was looking for a way to, to engage with issues that I felt mattered more to kind of provide a balance to my engaging but, but non-impactful PhD work. And I found the Citizens Climate Lobby. And I, I found them through a friend who had been volunteering with them for a year. And she had been nagging me and nagging me to join. And I had been like, no, 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 we can't. It's hopeless. And finally, one day in a, in a moment of weakness, I went to a meeting and I've, I've not looked back. The group really, really pulled me in from the beginning. I started doing work with them at their base levels of engagement. I would go set up tables and, and talk to people, not as an expert on the climate topic, but just as a concerned citizen with a scientific background. And I would write letters into the opinion sections of newspapers. And CCL does a really good job at training its kind of newest volunteers to, to get engaged off the bat. And so that was a fun learning experience. But over time, I kept wanting to do more and more because I was seeing the tangible impacts of my work in persuading the people in my community and bringing more people into the fold in the conversation. So I became a, a co-leader of my local chapter. And ultimately, I found that, that actually the space I was most effective in and the space I felt most at home in, which I... I people tell me is unconventional in the climate movement, but was around talking to conservatives. I myself have a lot of views that, that put me right of center on some issues. And I felt like I really got not the arguments against the science that conservatives were making, but some of the cultural discomfort that kind of underlay in part us being stuck on this issue and unable to cooperate in bipartisan ways. And I enjoyed having conversations and listening to people in that space and, and trying to create Yeah, a I definitely share that, that passion, but I find myself getting frustrated in speaking to my conservative friends, especially in my generation. When I get involved in this, it seemed to, to me to be nonpartisan. And what I found happening was that friends of mine who maybe we had come from this kind of ideological stance that's market-friendly, libertarian-oriented, they seem to just shut down. They seem to think, well, it can't be solved by markets alone. It it must not exist. Or they would go the other extreme and say, well, the markets are fi will fix it. We don't have to to deal with it. And I still have these arguments with certain friends of mine. I had one just the other day. And I'm wondering if you've encountered that if, if, or, or was this a generational thing? Is it is it people in my generation think this way and younger conservatives don't? Well, you're definitely not imagining things. Uh, this is a this is a real a real uh, barrier in the climate dialogue space. And if there was a silver bullet, uh, I would give it to you. There's also I'll get back to the question about age divides on this because I think that's that's pertinent to the conversation. And I myself am below 30 and started out my engagement on this space just talking to the people I knew and was was most readily connected with on campuses. And so that's a different starting point than talking to older generations. You know, there the first the first thing to be said is there are some people who 
we just aren't going to convince of the nature of the problem. And to be fair to those people, I have views on most every political issue, none of which I go on the air and voice other than my views on climate. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what are the chances that I've just stumbled onto all the views that are, are optimal, even by the values that I hold, let alone questioning those values? And I'm sure I will go to my grave having heard the arguments that, that should have dissuaded me convincingly and put articulately by people who have thought about them more than me. And I'm sure I will, I will, I will fail to, to heed some of those. And it's just the nature of being an engaged or even a, a, a less engaged and just engaged in other parts of your life, democratic citizen. And the, the point of that isn't to, to convey any sort of sense of hopelessness or, or, or inadequacy to the task. It's just to say that we should come from a, a place of empathy in recognizing that it's really, really not easy to convince people to change your mind. And the, the, the first order way to see that is to, to really think of the last time you yourself, and maybe you're different, any individual, but, but for most of us, including myself, it's, I have to think a little hard to think of the last time I changed my mind on a major issue. And so, so that's, that's the first thing to say. But the second thing to say is there really is room to convince and move and hear the concerns and meet people partway um, in this space. So Citizens Climate Lobby in particular, I think, I think the policy you choose is not irrelevant to this question. So we champion a market-based policy. And I think there's a lot of education to be done here. If you pull someone off the street and pull them, what are your thoughts on such and such a, a scheme for pricing carbon, they will probably say what? So it's not, it's not like the general populace is well-informed about the nature of solutions. And I think a lot of people fail to recognize just how similar putting a price on carbon is to letting markets do their thing in terms of kind of how it affects our other institutions and how it changes our our day-to-day landscape of of financial and economic interactions. That is to say, it's kind of just like we've, we've reoriented the market slightly. We don't have to go around making conscious decisions. Things aren't deeply regulated out of existence, but the market does a lot of the work as it, as it always has in the U S and we, we make much of the transition to a cleaner economy with just a, a really simple policy knob that we can pull. Now, that's not persuasive to every conservative or libertarian, or dare I even say to many of them. I think a lot of people want to feel, frankly, like there's a, a cultural space for them to engage on the issue. And it's a shame that the climate issue has kind of become politicized and become dragged into a a broader war of ideas on other issues. So, for example, when I listen to the the abortion debate, which I'm not going to get into my own thoughts on or anything like that, but it's very clear to me that the the reasons people have for believing one side or the other on that debate are are pretty non-malleable because they often boil down to religious beliefs or very, very deep beliefs about freedoms. And for good reasons, it's hard to persuade people out of those. But on climate, the, the particulars really matter. And there's precedent for and reason to believe that you can persuade people if you create a space uh, for them to work and for them to help craft the policy without being yelled at and without being <laughs> talked down to. So I don't mean to laugh, but they do make stuff up. It's hard in the climate movement because the people that are on the, the side of it where we want to reduce emissions are, are tempted to, to kind of treat this as an issue where the science with a capital T and a capital S is on our side and, and that it gives us a, a right to kind of be extra browbeating about it. And I think actually the opposite approach is what's required and to understand that 
listening to the scientific experts is a cultural phenomenon, which comes about from from knowing scientists and feeling that that scientists are are doing work that is in everyone's interest. And as a scientist, I wish it were the case that everybody felt that way about my profession. But I think my profession has a lot of work to do in, in getting out in communities and and doing service and creating a space for for people to feel like connected and, and to feel like we're all in the same project because there's there's become a disconnect between the the academic communities and the parts of the culture that that aren't as keen on addressing climate. Hmm. I'd argue that that disconnect was more intentional than cultural, and there's evidence for that. The book Merchants of Doubt, Naomi Ureskus and um, I forget her co-author's name, but they demonstrated quite clearly how the tobacco and oil companies used the open-mindedness and the, the questioning premises aspect of science to make people think it was all just, uh, you know, a confused muddle. I guess that, that's in this communication stuff. There's two questions that I have in, in what you said that I'd like to get to immediately before we come back to the communication issue. You talked about markets and the value that they have. And then you also alluded to the program that CCL is advocating, which is a carbon fee and dividend. Because when I think of carbon markets, I think of cap and trade, mm-hmm. where cap and trade, you put a cap on, on the emissions and then you you trade and the, the price fluctuates. So what you guys are actually advocating is the price stays the same and other things fluctuate. Can you briefly sketch out the differences now? And, and again, we'll, and we'll come back to it. We'll, we'll go into more detail later. I just wanted to lay out for people the sort of the issues that will be that we'll be diving into later in the conversation. Yeah, I guess the, the first thing to say before even talking about the differences, because these, these two policies have more in common, they are different. If you're a person that really likes cap and trade and doesn't like carbon taxes or vice versa, chances are you're probably at least a little bit confused about just how functionally similar the two at least can be. But there are real differences and, and CCL's decision to champion one instead of the other has, has costs and benefits. So a carbon tax or a carbon fee, as it's sometimes called, is the direct placing of a price on the emitting of a ton of CO2 or, or other greenhouse gas. So you, you say it's going to cost like $100 per ton or $10 per ton or whatever number you want in order to do that. And then you make the, the people who extract the fossil fuels pay the, the fee at the point of extraction, presumably, because that's fairly far upstream and you end up only having to apply it to a few hundred or thousand entities that way. A cap-and-trade system is different. In a cap-and-trade system, you say there's going to be a total amount of emissions allowed for whatever sectors of the economy we're going to cover. And that total amount of emissions, we're going to either give away or auction um, or just straight-up sell allowances for for the companies that that have the fossil fuels go through them. And you can do this fairly far upstream, or you can do it a little further downstream, as sometimes common for cap-and-trade. And then you're going to create a, a market where these allowances can be bought and sold by different players in this space. So in that market, if my company has some innovation and we switch from all coal-based power to all solar-based power, and we bought a ton of allowances at the beginning of the year when they were auctioned off, that's fine. We can now sell them to, to another company who actually had, a, had an uptick in its production needs uh, and needs to, needs to emit more carbon. So that's the, that's the fundamental difference between them. In a cap-and-trade system, you have supply certainty. You know exactly how much carbon you're going to, to allow to be supplied into the economy. In a carbon tax, you have price certainty. You know exactly what the cost 
of, and you can predict, project it out potentially for years or decades if, if it's written into law uh, like that, the cost of emitting the next ton of CO2 is. And that, that might sound like an academic difference, but from the perspective of getting business buy-in, uh, price uncertainty looks like risk. And there's always a lot of price uncertainty um, in markets. But one of the arguments for a carbon tax, and one thing I like about it, is it's the, the way of absolutely minimizing that risk. There's nothing you can do to reduce uncertainty more than specifying a constant number and saying this is going to be the number, and if it rises, it will rise predictably in a way which is laid out in the lot. Whereas in cap and trade, for a company to know the cost of emitting in the next year, they're going to have to make some educated guesses about the size of the economy and things which are far, far larger in scope than they themselves are. So, so that's, that's one difference. But there are other arguments in favor of cap and trade, and there are others in favor of a carbon tax. And for, for sufficiently wonky listeners, we can certainly get into those. Yeah, I wouldn't mind going into it a little bit because my bias is still towards cap and trade, mostly because you're starting with the end result in mind. I mean, you mentioned price volatility, but companies are used to dealing with that. Oil prices fluctuate all the time. So price volatility in a market system seems like an inevitability. And eliminating that volatility could come at the expense of the ultimate aim, which is reducing emissions. So this, I guess the way I see it, the emission reduction is a product. And people are out there planting trees and developing new technologies to create that product. And in cap and trade, you start by defining the need that the product will meet. You start with a science-based target which is the total amount of emissions that the system can handle, and then you work backwards from that. If you start with the carbon price instead of an emissions target, you're playing a whole different game. And I I know there's an argument out there, too, that says set the price at, say, the level of the cost of fuel switching and stuff. And that might be good in some cases, but it, it also takes away the incentive to create new solutions. Can you talk about why you see the fee and dividend approach as being better than cap and trade? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, we'll get to the dividend. You can do cap and dividend. You can. Uh, the dividend is not unique unique to kind of the carbon tax versus cap and trade distinction. What you do with the money is a uh, is the second most important is the, the other most important thing. Well, that's the other thing. About. Yeah, I guess it's, uh, I guess that's the other thing for me. Cap and trade is the money can go. It goes into. It automatically goes into reductions. I mean, that, that's this idea of the emission reduction as a product that's being sold, whereas. With a dividend, you're 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 also inserting a government entity in there that's or a bureaucratic entity that's making a decision rather than letting the buyer put it into. I wouldn't say that's true. Okay, let's table the discussion for a second of what to do with the money because that will confound the discussion of of where the money comes from and what the the impact on emissions is. So your your point about kind of the the appeal of cap and trade. I see this problem as we need to achieve a specific amount of emissions reductions that is that is mandated by the science. And in principle, at least on paper, cap and trade lets you hit it exactly. Whereas with a carbon tax, you could maybe come out too lower or worse, where the real fear is you could come out too high. And there is something to be said for that. If your end result that you care about is total emissions reductions, trying to steal a man your argument here, why not 
do the thing which, which gives you the, the best certainty in that? And I, I think the answer is there's nothing generic. It, it's not the case that in all problems of, of resource distribution, I would say, well, you always want price certainty and not supply certainty. But in the specific context of the emissions reducing conversation, it's just not the case that the scientists are that exactly prescriptive about exactly how much emissions needs to needs reductions needs to be achieved and on what timeline. And the simplified version of the conversation, which thankfully the long form of a podcast allows us not to have, is that we must achieve this percent, often specified to one or two digits of emissions reductions by this year, often not even a round numbered year. And the, the, this is not at all to take away from the, the seriousness of the problem and the urgency of it. But the, the certainty around those is not something that scientists go around saying the actual statement that you'll, you'll often hear about 1.5 degrees goes something like we need to reduce emissions by by this year by this much in order to have a 50% chance by the time 100 rolls around of the warming that's already baked in passing 1.5 degrees and oh by the way the, the universe doesn't know anything about the base 10 number system so 1.5 is not a magic number it's 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 just worse than 1.4 degrees of warming and better than 1.6 and the lower we get on that that score the better Let me just jump in here because he threw a lot of numbers at you, and I'm afraid we may be zipping along too quickly. He talked about 1.5. Well, that's not just a number he pulled out of thin air. It has a very specific context. And he's also making a point that we all too often forget, myself included. First, the context. The 1.5 degree figure that he's alluding to comes from the Paris Climate Agreement, which calls for, quote, holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, recognizing that this would significantly reduce the risks and impacts of climate change. There are two numbers there, and only one of them really comes from science. The 2 degrees Celsius goal, which is almost 4 degrees Fahrenheit, was not based on science. But instead, it came from a political compromise that was reached at the Cancun climate talks in 2010. 1.5 degrees Celsius, about 3 degrees Fahrenheit, is closer to where the science tells us we need to stay. But that science is, as Daniel points out, full of ranges and probabilities, which is why we really should try to err on the conservative side and just keep temperatures from rising any more than they have already. Now, every few years, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, tries to summarize all known science. And those summaries are themselves summarized and then simplified. Scientists are loathe to offer concrete numbers like 1.5 degrees Celsius because they're afraid we'll latch onto them and treat them as some sort of revealed truth. Well, guess what? We do just that. Even back in 2010, a decade ago, the IPCC summaries were telling us that we'd need to not just slash emissions, but expand carbon sinks that mop up greenhouse gases. That's why I focus so much on forests, farms, and fields. 
I'm also listener supported, which is why I produce so few episodes. I simply can't afford to do more. If you like Bionic Planet and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. If you're on the legacy system and are happy paying per month, you can stay there, but that means you'll end up paying even if I don't generate new content. On the other hand, to support me through Patreon, you have to become a Patreon member. Still, if you want to pay per episode instead of per month, Patreon is the way to go. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Getting back to Daniel Palkin, he was addressing two objections that I had raised to the fee and dividend proposal. One is that cap and trade, which I tend to advocate, starts with a science-based targets, and two, that businesses are used to price risk. So it's a, it's a continuous problem, the emissions problem, and there's not, there's not a magic number target, especially that any one country can hit in the context of there being many other countries whose emissions we still can't predict. So it's not like the U.S. has the only knob here. In fact, we're only something like 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So for all these reasons, the kind of arguments about a need for certainty at the, the two-digit level in total amounts of emissions, they don't seem as compelling to me as the arguments that do everything they can to optimize for addressing the needs of stakeholders. Because the hardness of the problem scientifically, this this was a hard problem scientifically, but we understand the problem well enough scientifically to know roughly the nature of it and, and roughly that we need to draw down emissions quite quickly to solve it. The real, real hard part right now, and I wish this weren't the case as a scientist who's, who's more naturally equipped to, to work on the other aspect of this, but the hard part of this is the politics. And there, there are times when businesses have stepped in and done the holdup, and there are times when politicians and, and various different stakeholder groups have, have stepped in and done a holdup. And, and so far, the product has been, we haven't had carbon pricing policy. And I, I'm no profit. Maybe the fact that a carbon tax is tax in the name. And even if we call it a fee, its opponents will, will come in and call it a tax. So maybe that will be a detrimental enough mark against it in its column. But businesses don't care about that. Businesses care about risk and sweeping under the, the rug the, the fact that saying that, oh, businesses handle risk, they will be able to handle this. I mean, quantitatively, that statement cashes out in the form of, of there's more risk and, and all else equal businesses will, will be less willing to, to stake innovative and interesting projects because of the uncertainties and the, the prices of energy. And so optimizing for that seems to me like a, like a compelling strategy. Now, the second thing you said about the kind of bureaucratic angle of, of cap and trade versus carbon tax, 
most economists and, and, and most anybody would tell you that you can make any policy as bureaucratic as you want, and, and God knows government bureaucrats often like to do so, but kind of the baseline policy for either one, the, the, the carbon tax is generally seen as less bureaucratic, and often by a fair amount. The reason for that is that you have to set up and facilitate and, and make sure people are playing fair in the carbon markets that exist for a cap and trade. Whereas for a carbon tax, for example, in our policy, you apply the, the, the price quite upstream. You don't need to apply it to, to a large number of entities so that you can have a, a kind of fluid market where everybody's trading. You just kind of single out the coal mines, the oil and, and gas refineries, and you apply it to about a total of, for us, something like it's between one and 2,000 different entities. They pay the cost and then start passing on those costs in a way where a, a decent fraction of them is actually passed on all the way to the consumer. And this is where the conversation about what you do with the money comes into play. So I don't know. Do you want to do you want to get into those waters? Yes. Yes. Let's do that. All right. So in a, if they're saying that uh, a cap and trade program can be used to funnel that money right back into reducing emissions more, a carbon tax can also do that. And, and conversely, a, ca- a cap and trade can choose not to do that. But that's that's one idea that people have. And it's it's a naturally compelling idea because the, the reason for doing the carbon tax or cap and trade is to reduce emissions in the first place. So why not funnel this money into subsidizing technologies that, that we think are promising or something like that? Well, there's, there's kind of two reasons. The first is kind of the, the consensus among economists. And it's a, it's a broad consensus that goes from left all the way to right. Uh, there was a, a letter in the Wall Street Journal signed by, by all former living chairmen of the Federal Reserve, actually all former heads of Council of Economic Advisors to the president, 27 or 28 Nobel laureates, and economics and and 3,500 other academic and otherwise economists saying that a carbon tax is the most cost-effective way to draw down emissions. And so what they would tell you is that if you think you want to, to take the money from a carbon tax and spend it on some emissions-reducing program, at least the, the, the kind of vetted belief of economists is that what you actually probably want is just a higher carbon tax. And so then the question of, of what do you do with the money comes in. And, and the a very big downside of a carbon tax or cap and trade, this is a downside shared between them, is that the costs that get passed on are just just as a, as a function of, of how our markets work and how wealth is distributed. They tend to be a larger fraction of the wealth of poorer people than of richer people. So even though in absolute terms, rich people will pay more of the carbon tax, they won't pay so much more that it won't fractionally hurt poorer people more. So that is to say a carbon tax and cap and trade are both intrinsically regressive policies. And this should be very troubling because the last thing we want to do in addressing climate change is make the poorest people who have contributed the least to the problem be the ones that pay the most in having to solve it. So a very simple and elegant way that has a relatively high amount of, of bipartisan appeal you can really talk about this with progressives and you can really talk about it with conservatives. And there's, there's something to like for almost everyone here, although maybe it's no one's very favorite choice, is to just take the money and just give it back to everyone uniformly. So take the money, you divide it by 350 million or 300 million, the number of people in the U.S., and you divide it again by 12 and you send everybody a monthly check as a carbon dividend, we call it. It's a flat amount of money, same for every person. And if I give a, a poorer person $10 and I give a richer person $10, that's a progressive wealth distribution plan. It's, it's much more fractionally of the poorer person's money than it is of the richer person's money. And if you think about it, it's, it's actually more progressive than the tax is regressive. So a fee and dividend policy 
not only doesn't hurt poorer people, it actually allows them to come out slightly ahead, but it's not a punishment for being rich at the same time. If you're a, if you're a billionaire and you live in a solar powered igloo and, and refrain from flying your private jet too much, you stand to make $50 off this policy, just like the next guy. But the amount that you're, but the amount that your activities are generating into it are significantly higher because you're flying a jet all over the place. So you're paying, you're paying yeah. more in and you're getting less back. And then the guy who just drives his truck to work, he's not flying all over the place. So he's not generating all kinds of fees, but he will receive something back that might be more than he's paying in. Yeah. And that, that's exactly right. And, and in practice, most billionaires will probably lose more than they get in a fee and dividend system. But the idea is that it's a level playing field. The, the math itself is not biased. It's just everybody pays according to how much they pollute. And we, we talked a little bit earlier about kind of framings and, and arguments that work or don't work towards conservatives. A framing that I found helpful in, in conceptualizing this issue myself and that I think makes sense in conserv- to conservatives is thinking about the, the kind of the cost that other forms of energy pay for pollution. So nuclear power, when nuclear plants generate their energy, they generate nuclear waste. And that's not, that's not an insurmountable problem. We have, we have ways of storing that waste temporarily, even for very long time scales and storage facilities. We have, we have ways of, of putting it in the ground. But it's, it's incumbent upon the nuclear companies who are generating that energy to build in the cost and pass along the cost of their waste storage. And no, nobody bats an eye at this. In fact, if, if, we, if the nuclear companies started dumping nuclear waste into all our rivers and oceans, everybody agrees that would probably be a very bad idea. And so it's, we, we haven't got to the point in our conversation where we're used to thinking of the, the pollution from fossil fuels exactly the same way. But what we've, what we've learned from the science is that there really is an adverse effect here. And there's a second adverse effect, which doesn't even directly have to do with climate change, but it's the air pollution problem. And that's a problem that people can tangibly see and feel, which is why we've done a a better job at addressing it. There used to be big brown smog clouds over cities. Which perversely, perversely reflected, reflected heat back too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So these, these things often have complicated interaction terms and complicated feedbacks and not every physical effect fits the easiest political narrative. And as a physicist, I'll file a complaint about that. But nonetheless, it's, it's, it's the case that when we can see the problem, we're better at dealing with it. And the thing about climate is we're starting to see the problem and we're going we're gonna to be seeing more and more of it. And so if we frame the problem as something where it's a, it's a common sense thing, our other sources of energy, nuclear, even waste created in, in making solar panels, everybody's expected to pay for their own waste disposal. Why shouldn't the fossil fuel companies in the same way? This isn't, this isn't a statement about we need to shut them down or anything like that. This is a statement about they should pay a reasonable rate for their waste disposal and let the markets uh, do the rest. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You've done a great job of laying out the general theory. I'm wondering if we could just dive in now to your specific proposals, H.R. 763 and, and some of the other issues that you guys are working on, maybe Maybe we can unpack that a little bit and talk about what you're proposing that is specifically within this within this frame. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that in a second. But first, if you like Bionic Planet and you want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet there you can support me for as little 
as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. I'm on your website. I'm gonna, I want to kind of walk through the site. And if anybody wants to walk along with, it's citizensclimatelobby.org. Citizensclimatelobby, all one word. Org. It's a very uh, accessible site. And you have Our Climate Solution. And I click on this, and I get the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And this is H.R. 763. And you, you lay it out here on your site. The policy will reduce America's emissions by at least 40% in the first 12 years. And if we can dive into a little bit on what the prices are you're proposing and things like that, that'd be great. Yeah. Do, you, do you have the site in front of you? I, I have the site in front of me right now, yeah. But I can also, I know the site, I can, I can see it when I fall asleep. So, so, so the bill is currently H.R. 763. I'm going to back up a sec because when I, when I first joined TCL, I did not know anything. And so for the benefit of, of listeners who also are kind of new to national climate legislation and, and what that looks like, when bills get introduced in the, the House, they have HR, which I think stands for House Resolution or, or, or maybe something like that, and then a number, which is the bill's number for that session. And so that's just the, the bill's number in the House. It, had a, it was introduced actually for the first time, not this year, but it was, it was in 2018 that the first Energy Innovation Act was introduced, and that had a different number. And then it was reintroduced in this Congress as H.R. 763. There was also a Senate bill in the last Congress. So let's start with kind of the history of the bill. CCL was founded in the, the late aughts, and we've been around for a bit over a decade now. And, and the, the group has grown tremendously. For a while, I, I don't know if this is still the case, but it was roughly doubling in size every year, which for, for a decade or so is, is an incredible level of growth. I always like to say that if, if CCL kept doing that for 300 years, there would be more volunteers in CCL than there are particles in the observable universe. So at some point, the doubling had, has to or had to stop. But those volunteers would every year go to Washington, D.C., and they would meet with their elected officials. And they would just talk with them about a proposal we had called Carbon Fee and Dividend, which is what turned into the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which, which was what was introduced. So after about 10 years of doing this, it really takes time and it really takes numbers and it really takes citizen-driven effort to, to kind of get politicians to champion legislation this big and transformative. And there was another barrier we set up for ourselves, which is part of what's so compelling about this group to me, which is that Citizens Climate Lobby said, we're not interested in even our dream legislation if it doesn't have at least a, a Democrat and a Republican supporting it. So we're not interested in any all Republican bills. We're not interested in all, any all Democrat bills. And insisting on bipartisan cooperation on the one hand can draw out the process of, of getting something onto, into the House. But on the other hand, it can show both sides that you're really serious about the bipartisan thing and that you're really invested in having both sides have a role in the conversation on something that we will ultimately need 
a large fraction of America to buy into in order to, to solve, which is the problem of climate change. So in 2018, I think most everyone in CCL remembers where they were when they found out that the bill had been introduced in the House. It was a long time coming, and then it was shortly after introduced in the Senate. At the time, it had three Republican co-sponsors in the House, David Trott of Michigan, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Francis Rooney of Florida, and it had one Republican and one Democrat in the Senate, the Republican being Jeff Flake, who's no longer in the Senate. And CCL hasn't found another Republican for the bill in the Senate, and, and nor has the, the Democratic Senate office of Chris Coons. And so there isn't a bill in the Senate right now because CCL is, is again, not interested in, in championing bills that that only can get buy-in from one party. But there is a bill in the House. It was introduced, again, by Francis Rooney, Republican of Florida, and Ted Deutsch, Democrat of Florida, and a, and a host of others. And, and the others to sponsor it since have been mostly Democrats, which is a problem that, that I'm working to address, because I, I, I think these, these types of things really need significant amounts of bipartisan buy-in, and we can, we can get into to why later if we want. So that's kind of the history of, of the bill up to, up to its second introduction. Since it was introduced, it, it got put in three committees. So bills, when they get into the House, go to committees. The, the committee chairs and the committees have a lot of power over them. They can mark them up. They can just hold them up if they want to obstruct. So getting put into a smaller number of committees is kind of a, a good thing. And our, our bill was sent to three committees, Ways and Means, Energy and Commerce, and Foreign Affairs. And we've been very cognizant to get supporters of the bill to, to pay particular attention to the member of those committees as part of the political strategy so that we make sure that the people with the most oversight of it have a good understanding of what the policy we're championing is. And the bill is kind of sitting in those committees now, and it's, it's probably not going to move anywhere, is my guess. It's, it's not in CCL's control at this point. It's in the control of Democratic and leadership because the Democrats control the House to say when bills like this might move. But my best guess is that you'd want to see significant movement of a companion bill in the Senate. So that's, that's where the bill is. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. It's in the House. It's in committee. Is there anybody in the Senate who has expressed an interest in introducing it over there with Flake on? On, this, on yeah, the Republican side of me? Um, yeah. There's a few things to say here. One is not, uh, CCL is a 150,000 person organization in terms of our number of registered supporters, and I'm not privy to, to all the conversations that happen. But second of all, if I were, I unfortunately, uh, CCL takes the, the, the confidentiality of our meetings with, with senators and House members very seriously for obvious reasons. And so it's not something I, I necessarily know or would be in a position to say if I, I did know, but I can certainly remark on publicly made statements and, and where, from a, from a public outside looking in perspective, there's room for, for meaningful optimism because people think of this as, oh, what, what Senate Republican in the current political environment wants to say good things about carbon pricing? Surely no one prominent, but it turns out that that's not the case. Mitt Romney earlier last year came out and just had a kind of a, a press conference where he just started saying very positive things about carbon pricing, particularly with a dividend. And ours is not the only carbon pricing policy out there. But also, we're not so wedded to our exact policy that if there was another similar one that had bipartisan support, we wouldn't be interested in that. But you've, you've seen Republican senators coming out, Romney in particular is one, but then there's a group, and this isn't a carbon pricing group, this is a group d dedicated to discussing broader bipartisan solutions, and, and carbon pricing is one thing they might discuss, called the Climate Solutions Caucus. There's a version of this in the House, which CCL was instrumental in forming, and there's also a version in the Senate. Again, it's not a carbon pricing group, but they're a group that on both sides are very, very serious about 
finding climate solutions that are workable across the aisle. And carbon pricing may enter that discussion because it naturally has its, this bipartisan appeal, especially when it's revenue neutral. It's not growing government in the form that we have with the dividend. So that's kind of a, a cause for optimism looking forward on the Senate side. And it's very much in our control as citizens, what pressure we apply to our elected officials and what we do to reward them when they say the right things and introduce the right legislation and and represent us in the way we want to be represented on both sides of the aisle. So that's the politics. Now let's now let's really get into the policy if that's if that sounds good. Yeah, sure. And I just wanted to quickly point out that the Climate Solutions Caucus members are also identified on your website if anybody wants to take a look. Yeah. So yeah, now let, let yeah, let's now let's dive into the the policy itself. Yeah. So the policy itself, there's four pillars to it. And three of them are really the big pillars. The first big pillar is the the fee on carbon itself. So this applies not just to CO2, but it applies to other greenhouse gases for the most part at their CO2 equivalent rate. So methane has a a per per atom uh, of methane emitted has a higher greenhouse effect than CO2 by a a well-understood amount. Over a 100-year period, it's 20 to 1, and over a 20-year period, it's like 80 to 1, something like that. Yep, it leaves the atmosphere much quicker. And I actually don't know which timescale for for gases that leave on different timescales is is used in calculating that. So I will will acknowledge my ignorance there. But the fee is $15 per ton of CO2 for the first year or ton of CO2 equivalent, really. And when I say a dollar per ton of CO2, that's, that's very roughly a penny per gallon of gas at the pump. But think of it as not just applied to, to petroleum products, but is applied to also all sources of, of energy we use across the economy. So it also applied to coal at a steeper rate because coal emits more per kilowatt hour of energy we extract, and it would apply to natural gas at a somewhat lesser rate. And it, it wouldn't apply to, to renewables and to nuclear because those those don't directly emit. Okay. Can, we, can we just, because that, that's, you mentioned this before too, and I wanted to dive into it a bit on the mechanics of that. How do you go about, assess, and it's only on energy, so you're not talking about agriculture or anything like that, and you're, and right. and it, it's it's at the source. What are the mechanics of that, and does it apply to things like fugitive methane and, and, and stuff? So the, the mechanics of this are, the, the way we apply it, which is the thing I mentioned earlier, is we apply it fairly far upstream. And the thinking there is, First of all, you get more economic interactions on the way to market. So there's more opportunity for people to receive a, a, a financial benefit from reducing emissions. But you get this other bigger benefit of, frankly, you don't have to apply it to many, many places, which makes it bureaucratically very simple. I mean, there's no market that you have to set up to trade. So that's that's where the bureaucratic advantage that I talked about earlier comes in. And it applies to fuels that we combust to extract power from. So anything in your automobile or anything that your utility sends to your house or your business or anything like that, but it doesn't apply, like you say, to emissions that come from how we how we manage our land or how we make certain products. And the the total kind of fraction of emissions that that come from the power sector roughly is is in the ballpark of like four fifths or something like that. So we're we're not attacking the whole problem, but we're attacking the biggest part of it. And frankly, the easier part to deal with, at least in terms of where are the policy levers that we can just quickly do one thing and really see emissions fall in a way that doesn't damage the economy. And then does it apply to fugitive methane? It does not. And the reason for that is there aren't very good tracking numbers for that on specific wells at present. So it would be hard to know exactly who to apply the tax to and how much. So there's a few things you can do there. It, you can get better data, and groups like the Environmental Defense Fund have been have been doing 
uh, good things in that space, or you can take a more regulatory approach uh, to reducing fugitive methane in the interim, both of which I think are important things to consider in, in reducing what is also a significant part of the emissions problem. States can in, in have their own carbon pricing policy, which can be layered on top of this. Um, and, and any other law can be put into effect, which tries to address the fugitive methane problem. But ours does not interact directly with that. It leaves it for another bill. Okay. And, and the, the price is assessed, again, based on the I think you said it, but I just wanted to restate it in case you we did. It's, it's based on the yep. the emissions that will result from it being combusted in use. That's absolutely right. So we have those numbers are very well known for for different petroleum products for for coal for natural gas, and it's also fortunately the case that the companies that we would be assessing this tax to already for other reasons, often severance taxes or, or other things, keep very careful track of exactly you know how much they extract. And, and so the numbers are all there. It's kind of just adding a column on the spreadsheet in order to do that. But I should get to the next part of this, the fee, which is the $15, you would, you would be correct to surmise that, that like 15 cents per, per gallon of gas order of magnitude is not going to even apply it across all energy sources significantly draw down emissions in line with what the scientists urge us to do. The price goes up is the the key thing here. And a lot of carbon prices go up by a percentage amount. And ours does not. Ours goes up by a dollar amount. And in principle, you can can dial these knobs however you want. But in practice, saying ours is going to go up by $10 per year means that our carbon tax, though it starts quite low, $15 is a relatively small carbon tax, and it gives the economy time to adjust. Going up at 10 per year is actually quite rapid um, compared to other carbon taxes. So ours is a carbon tax for people that like carbon taxes, but also that like smooth economic adjustment to them. And that's that's kind of where CCL situates itself in, in wanting to prioritize both those things. So by 10 years in, when we project we'll have reduced emissions by about 40%. And, and that's not just us saying that. Columbia just put out a study with findings that were in that ballpark. And independent analysts, because this bill is getting a lot of attention, have started looking. And, and the numbers are roughly 40% by 2030 with a target um, of 90% emissions reductions by mid-century, which is pretty close to in line with the IPCC 1.5 recommendations. And so that, that rate of increase is there. And if we're failing to meet targets after the five-year mark, that rate of increase can actually ratchet up to $15 per ton of CO2 per year. So it can start increasing slightly quicker. Okay. So basically, ba- based on the research from Columbia and other, and other schools, the price and the increments that you're imposing should reduce emissions by 40%. If it doesn't work, you raise the price, that's all baked into the bill. Yes. So that, that's just the first pillar. So that's the fee. The second pillar is the, the dividend, which I already talked about. That's just taking the money and doing something, the, the kind of least creative thing you can think of to do with it, but in many ways, the, the, the most equitable and, and the most broadly appealing and not letting 535 politicians in Washington get the hands on their money for the many for their favorite project and, and opening the Pandora's box of doing that, but just giving the money back to the citizens on a flat basis that corrects the most common objection uh, to carbon taxes, which is a valid objection, which is that without a mechanism like this, they're regressive. Uh, and this, this makes them not only not regressive, it makes it slightly progressive. So that's the, that's the second pillar that's a that's a big one and, and one that a lot of people in CCL are very enthusiastic about. Then there's the third pillar, which is called a border carbon adjustment. 
So another another common objection, and this one often comes from the right, although it can come from anywhere in the political spectrum. It's a it's a it's a valid point to raise, is why are, why should the U.S. go to to a lot of work to reduce emissions if other countries aren't necessarily uh, bought into doing the same? And that's a that's a fair question. And so including a mechanism in your bill, which one which a country can ground its diplomacy around in order to kind of put maximum pressure on other countries to do similar things is something that we were cognizant of in crafting this bill. And and that mechanism is called the border carbon adjustment. What it essentially is, is we apply the fee to imported goods if they're carbon intensive at the same rate that we would have applied it if those goods were produced domestically subject to the carbon fee in our country. And conversely, we rebate what we estimate the amount of the fee would have been on exported goods if they're going into countries without their own carbon price. And it's that last part that I actually want to zero in on. It's it's we only do this to countries, to, to, to companies from countries that don't have their own carbon price. So if you're some other country, if you're if you're France, and to pick a random example, and you're trading with the United States and there's, and, and actually the EU does have a, a cap and trade, a, a modest cap and trade program. But if you didn't have a carbon price and you were looking to import some, some carbon intensive aluminum, or you were just looking to straight up import a fossil fuel into the United States, we would say, wait, 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 we've, we've put this restriction on ourselves. We're going to apply the, the same uh, price to you importing your good, first of all, so that our businesses in our own country can stay competitive. We, can't just, we don't want to just be undercut by countries that don't have a carbon tax. But second of all, so that the government of France takes notice of the fact that our companies are giving a lot of money to United States citizens. And the United States has it in their policy that if we introduce our own carbon price, our companies don't have to pay the border adjustment. So it's actually the government of France or the government of another country that's now incentivized to put their own price on carbon. So, so this is a mechanism for strongly encouraging, for taking advantage, frankly, of the fact that the U.S. is the, the, the largest economy in the world and using that economy to peacefully but forcefully suggest to other countries that we all need to be in this together at a roughly commensurate rate. And one of the really nice things, and we, we don't insist that other countries have their own carbon tax. They could do a cap and trade system, or if they, they got emissions really low through some other means, the, the border adjustment might not apply to a good on the grounds of it not being carbon intensive. But the, the short version is that the nice thing about a carbon tax is if you're not able to meet those emissions reductions, the, the carbon tax is actually forgiving. If, if you can't make a transition at $100 a ton, and you have, for example, a carbon fee and dividend system, the money just gets recycled back through the economic system. You, you, you unfortunately stay on the fossil fuel um, because it would have cost your economy a lot to make the transition to a cleaner energy. But we won't be, you won't be hurting other countries unnecessarily if they choose to implement a similar policy because the carbon tax, unlike cap and trade, doesn't just ratchet down emissions unconditional of how hard it is to do so. It creates a system where we're going to put a price on emissions if there aren't players in your economy who can achieve energy, which is only more expensive by the price or less, it's okay to do the emissions. That makes sense. Let me, I think now you've got one more pillar, which is regulatory adjustment. Regulatory pause. This is a routine ask from conservative offices, conservative offices, Republican offices in the House and Senate. So, so I, I should back up and say that twice a year, and for the first time this year, three times a year, but I can, I can talk about that in a second. CCL goes to Washington, D.C., 
and lobbies every single congressional office, virtually every single congressional office. I think last June we got 529 of them out of, uh, there's technically 541 because there's six non-voting offices, including like a, a DC representative, Puerto Rico. So we got 529 out of 541. And we go into these offices and we talk to them about our policy. And, and for the longest time when we were talking to Republican offices, one thing we would routinely hear is, how do we know we're not just going to apply this carbon tax and still face the same regulatory approaches that we are less inclined to like as being, as being less market-driven? And an answer to that is to include in the bill a regulatory pause, which says, from the executive branch, we're not going to allow additional regulations in a, in a narrow sense, regulations that just impact the same emissions for the same reason, for the reason of, of reducing the emissions. So you can still regulate, for example, methane wells, because those are not emissions that our bill is covering, and states can still do whatever they want. And you can even have regulations that impact fossil fuels and, and they're burning for, for health reasons or something like that. But the commitment is we're not going to pile on regulations on top of uh, a carbon price uh, so long as the targets are being met. So at the 10-year mark, if emissions targets are being met, there's scientific studies commissioned that are, that are set forth within the bill, and an evaluation is made, and if the targets are being met, then the regulatory freeze stays in place. But if, if for some reason the economists who have looked at this are wrong and the bill fails to reduce emissions, by the, by the amount that we thought the carbon price would, the EPA's ability to regulate the, the same fossil fuels are restored. So as long as we're on pace to reduce emissions 90% by mid-century from this one policy alone, there's, a, there's kind of a narrow regulatory rollback. And that was a selling point for conservative interests. So those are the four pillars, fee, dividend, border adjustment, regulatory pause. Now, that, why, why t- but 10 years, like what, what happens if we're way off? What if we realize after three years, oh my God, emissions are spiraling up this is not going to work. We need to. We need to jump. Although the price is is, re, is evaluated every year, right? So there's the price is not evaluated every year. It's at the five year mark that the price can ratchet up, and it's at the ten year mark that this regulatory power can be restored. But if we make a mistake, the same government that had the political initiative to put it in place, and the same governmental bodies are in every bit as good a position to say, okay, let's modify it. What we're saying is we're not going to allow an executive to put carbon emissions in double jeopardy like that. And it it doesn't really do anything to promote sinks. The money that comes in has to go into the dividend. You can't put it into things like forest conservation or improved forest management or anything like that, right? That would have to be something that is done either voluntarily by the private sector hmm. or or by states, I'm, I'm assuming, right? That's or, or could be done through another law at the federal level. But the, the short answer is yes. This, this bill does not promote ways of drawing carbon, say, just out of the air. There is there's one caveat here, which is the bill does have a, a part that if you, if you can capture the emissions at the source and store them in a long-term way, so they're not just released into the air the next, the next you know, day or year or decade, then in that case, you will be rebated the amount of fee that you had to pay directly or indirectly. So there is the part that takes into account the the value that's that's added to our, our climate by people who can figure out ways to to burn the fossil fuels without emitting the CO2. What we don't have, for example, that you could imagine having, but uh, and I'll say why we don't have it, 
is we don't have a clause that, you know, if, if say you build something in your backyard that can just vacuum carbon out of the atmosphere. And in fact, this is a, an area of active research and, and very, very worth pursuing. We don't give you a, a rebate on the fee in exchange for doing that. And you might say, why? It might sound like a very good thing to, to want to do to incentivize that type of development, because that's a technology which, if it came to, to real cost-effective fruition, could really be, be an almost silver bullet in this space. But the, the reason is the finances of Washington. Say you did come up with this thing in your backyard that could do this very, very cheaply. You could essentially break the bank, so to say. You, you could just vacuum so much carbon out of the atmosphere that the U.S. government would just start hemorrhaging money to you. And, and you know, it's a good problem to have in a way. Uh, because you've you've then solved climate change, but it's it's not a fiscally tenable problem. It's not within the scope of this bill. So it's something that you'd want other legislation to incentivize, and and that's something where subsidization money can go, and it's something that that states can do, and it's something that companies should be looking at. I mentioned at the start of today's show that I caught up to Dan right before he headed to Washington. That was a few weeks back, but it took me this long to edit out all the ums and ahs and digressions because I still don't make enough from this show to hire an editorial assistant or to take time off from my day job. Putting together this show takes time and time is money. If you like Bionic Planet and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end. And that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Getting back to Daniel, I had asked him to explain his upcoming and now behind us trip to Washington. So CCL, from its conception, is a group that kind of tries to... to play this inside-outside game in the climate space, where a lot of what we do is grassroots advocacy and education, which is extremely important to, to bringing people into the fold on climate, giving them a space to have their voices heard on it, to have their questions answered. But then we also do this thing where we send volunteers into lobby meetings, thousands of them, twice a year in Washington, D.C., covering just about every office on both the June and November lobby days. And we have confidential conversations, which are reported back to, to our national organization in which, you know, you know what, what CCL's real advantage over even other very well-resourced think tanks is that we just have so many people. You know, if you're, if you're the best think tank in the world and you have the, the guru who can, you know, uh, talk to anyone about anything in this space, you can, you know, even if you tried to send them to every congressional office, there's more congressional offices than there are days in a year, let alone uh, days when Congress is in session and, and working a year. So we can really get every single office or, or nearly. And so for the, for the first time, 
are there was there's been interest from the conservative wing of our organization. So I should say the other thing that's really unique about CCL is that you know not not every climate group that has very very serious emissions reductions goals has a, a substantive conservative constituency that's that's bought into it and that actively participates in it. And that's that's part of a group that I'm part of. And uh, there's a there's a very good team of us in Colorado that that focus on on conservative stuff and, and nationwide that's that's true. And so all of us from from across the U.S. are heading to Washington for our first ever third lobby day of the year, which is going to take place in a little under a month. It's on February 4th, and about 80 of us are going to to go in to Republican offices and have have Republican, Libertarian, Independent, but but kind of center-right leaning independent, various various right-of-center people go in and talk to conservative legislators about our policy. And we've always found that when we send people into offices who are of the political tribe of who they're talking to, from the, the left all the way to the right, that's where we excel. And so having a, a space where only the people who are coming at this from the more conservative angle get to meet the day before in D- D.C. from all over the country, talk to each other about our, our politics on this, and then have that experience of, of going into, you know, it's a very busy day, going into five uh, different offices potentially and meeting with the staffs and sometimes meeting with the members of Congress themselves is something that it, it's, it's, I've had my calendar marked for this for a while, and I think, I think it's going to be a really exciting experience. Yeah, it will. I hear that, but you know, you're assuming that these guys are legitimately concerned about finding efficient ways of meeting this challenge. What what happens if you find out that the people you're lobbying in good faith are the people who I call the false pragmatists? You know, they they've they've really been brought in by you know the Koch brothers to protect their little sector of the oil industry and and to use arguments like market efficiency you know you, you know where i'm going this is an interesting question as is often the case in this space when you get involved in it there's often cause for optimism but but not cause to believe that things will necessarily just work out happily. It's, it, you know, this is very much in our hands. But what is, what is the cause for optimism here? Because I think the, the, the case that you're stating is the type of Republican that you might think from the outside is, is prone to support significant climate action is maybe the Bob Inglis type, where he's, you know, Bob Inglis is, is not a Trump supporter, for example. He makes, you know, he, he's, he's clear about that. He has a different articulation of what conservatism is. And furthermore, it's the articulation that seems to have not done well in the 2016 election. Bob Inglis served six terms in the U.S. House of Representatives from the beginning of 2005 through the end of 2010 when the Koch brothers primaried him, basically put a ton of money into his opponent in the Republican primary because he had started taking climate science seriously. Yes, they really did. Inglis appeared in the very first episode of Bionic Planet, which was called Putting a Price on Carbon, the arguments in favor. You can learn more about him in the book Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power. The book is great, and the audiobook is excellent. Now, I got the audiobook through audible.com, 
And if you're not already a subscriber to Audible, you can get the book there too, and for free, while helping me produce more episodes of Bionic Planet, simply by getting a 30-day trial to Audible through audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's audibletrial, all one word, dot com forward slash Bionic Planet, that's also all one word, no dots or dashes. AudibleTrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Unfortunately, if you're already a member of Audible, you can't get the free membership. But if you like the work I'm doing and want to help me do more of it, well, you know what to do. Become a supporter at Bionic-Planet.com or via Patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. There are conservatives out there in the modern Trump variety that are starting to talk about climate change in a way that even a few years ago you weren't hearing. So Matt Gates, for example, who you, uh, if you're if you're familiar with him, he's, you're more likely to be familiar uh, with him from from kind of our our impeachment politics and and things in this space, has has recently said climate change isn't something people get to choose to believe or not. It's happening. Lindsey Graham has been speaking a rhetoric on climate that that is is suggestive that he's very interested in 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 finding action that he can that he can see his way to supporting and so there are there are a, getting to be a, a meaningful constituency of republicans of the of the kind of newer trump variety who are also expressing interest in solving the problem and i think the reason for that is and i, I promised i would address this earlier and I, I, I don't know if I don't think I ever got to it, but one of the most promising, frankly, things in the climate space where conservatives are concerned are the nature of the people that are defecting from the climate denial side to the, OK, how can we get solutions side? So one of those defectors is Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz was famously anti-climate. He wrote a famous memo to the Bush administration urging a, a kind of denialist position in the, the very early 2000s. He's the one who told Bush to use the term climate change because it was, it was less intimidating and scary than global warming was. Yeah. And, and after a California fire that affected him and people he knew personally, he looked more at the issue and reversed stance on it. And he's now become an important ally. And why is, why is Frank Luntz an important ally? Frank Luntz is kind of the master messenger of the Republican Party. He's the, he's the person that came up with calling the estate tax the death tax, which is a great name to call a tax if you, if you want to get rid of that tax. So this is a guy who has, has ideas that once you hear them are, are very politically sharp. And he's a focus group guy. So he gets these ideas from, from concentrated conversations with with conservatives across America. He regularly appears on Fox. And it was the organization he started ran a poll where they asked people if they would support a policy that puts a price on carbon and returns the proceeds directly to taxpayers, which which should sound familiar to listeners at this point. And the support among GOP voters under 40 years old was 75%. It it was almost identical to the, the support among Democratic voters. 
So young GOP voters, independent of whether their politics align with the Trumpist worldview or the Bob Inglis worldview or anyone else, have a strong desire not only to, to see climate change solved, but actually will, will, when asked, say that exactly the policy we're talking about is, is one that they can get behind. So that, that, I think is, that, I think, is why you're seeing more Republicans and more Trump Republicans come out and, and start to say things which, which sound more and more on the road towards, towards the type of climate policy we're discussing or, or other types of, of meaningful climate policy. And our goal is to be there to meet them and to say, ours is an organization where you are welcome and we're going to fight for this policy together. And that's what Conservative Lobby Day is about. Yeah, I, I hear you and I want to believe, but I keep coming back to these people who I call the false pragmatists. These, are, these aren't the people being polled. These are the people sitting in Congress and, and speaking publicly on this issue on behalf of the party and the conservative movement. They're not people I would call conservative at all in the, in the, the great tradition of that word. Yeah. So, so to this question of how you, you know, what about the quote unquote false pragmatists in this space who, you know, are there to voice objections about, you know, well, we got to be really certain before we do this, but, but ultimately, you know, the belief I hear you expressing is that maybe these people aren't really concerned with fixing the problem at all. And they're just trying to obstruct. I think all sorts of people exist. And there are people who really wake up in the morning and, and want to talk about issues in a disingenuous way, which achieves a, a short-term political end. And CCL's philosophy is to treat these people like the best versions of themselves that we could imagine them being. Not because, you know, not because we purport to be psychologists or know exactly, you know, what's going on inside people, but just because there are, there are kind of maybe there's another type of person who often from, from the outside perspective that you or I have to, you know, to, to looking at this, that's not the thought process going on inside their head. And, and I have, uh, you know, maybe, maybe unwarrantedly, but a, a generous view of people, which I, I think has only grown in my time in CCL and, and kind of seeing how dedicated people across the political spectrum are on this issue. But there's the, the type of person, I think a good embodiment of this is, is Jerry Taylor. And for listeners that don't know, Jerry Taylor was the head of, I think they call the Department Energy and Environment. Essentially, he was their, their kind of climate denial guy at the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, which in my view has, has so far, unfortunately, missed the opportunity to, to see climate change as something that we could really lead the world in fixing and benefit from that. But, but that aside, Jerry Taylor's story is fascinating. He wasn't a full-on climate denier, but he expressed this kind of deep skepticism, which is in line with what you describe about about our ability to really solve the problem and you know the problem isn't so big in the first place and and jerry was on a, a tv show in kind of one of these two minute snippets which which you know ultimately are, are not the the kind of the right forum for giving giving listeners a, a detailed and informed view of, of what is ultimately a very complicated topic of climate change he was on he was on kind of one of these you know, few minute debate segments and he was debating somebody on the quote unquote other side who's, you know, uh, telling him, no, 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 like I'm a scientist, this is a real problem. And Jerry was, you know, dredging up the facts, which are hard to, re the, 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 that subset of facts, which are hard to make rebuttals to in 60 seconds or less. And afterwards backstage, they were talking 
And the scientist told Jerry, you know, I don't know how you get up and do this in the morning. You know, if, if you're if you're not the hack, I think you are. You'll go and you will look at some of the claims you're making. He was making claims about a scientist, James Hansen, who had, had said things before Congress. And you'll see that those claims aren't in line, that the testimony you gave in your summary of it was, was incorrect. And Jerry went back, <coughs> sorry, and he looked at, he looked at that testimony and he found out that uh, lo and behold, he actually was summarizing it incorrectly. And that kind of, in his natural skeptics and very smart mind, set off, you know, a big enough, a big enough alarm bell that he started checking his assumptions on a lot of things. And, and re- with relative ease came to the conclusion that, oh my God, he had been on the wrong side of this issue and advocating quite convincingly for, for a position that he now didn't hold. And then, then like he kind of still had this tenuous position where he was like, okay, but maybe the economics of it don't line up. I can still talk about that. And he started digging into that as well and found that, oh my God, actually the, the economics of this are, you know, this is a manageable problem if we, if we, if we are swift to act and, and it is a problem. And he, the way he describes this, I love this. He he describes it as as if you were as if you were a, a journalist at Mother Jones and you came to the conclusion uh, that guns were actually good and that they did a good job protecting people. And and just imagine the Christmas parties, trying to trying to, to you, you'd be you'd be kind of shunned in awkward silence in the corners when you. And that was his experience at Cato. But he still had many of the the views about about the the goodness of markets. In fact, he wanted in the same way CCL does. To, to markets to be the thing that addresses climate change. And he didn't have a space for that at Cato. And so he did what any very well uh, connected, uh, dedicated person would do. And he started his own think tank. I mean, it's called the Niskanen Center. And the work they do, they have a more general stance than CCL. They don't have a, they don't have a specific bill that is their horse, but they kind of try to lay the congressional framework for supporting a variety of different carbon pricing proposals. And Taylor and his people have all the zeal of converts. I, I Googled uh, Jerry Taylor's conversion. It looks like the person he was talking to was Joe Rahm. Joe Rahm is also a communications guy. He wrote a great book called Language Intelligence, Lessons on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga, which was almost identical to Luntz's book. Luntz had a book called Words That Work, and I remember reading both of those books simultaneously at the same time. So if, so I guess if anyone's going to convert uh, a guy like Jerry Taylor, it's yeah. going to be a guy like Joe Rahm. The lesson here is even, you know, if there's five people who you waste a few hours of conversation on because they're these false pragmatists and you can't talk to them, and or maybe you're just not making the arguments that, that kind of trigger the switch in their mind, you know, for every, for every five of them and for every five hours you waste, or, or, or five days or, or, or something, you, if you even find one Jerry Taylor and you take somebody at the absolute top of pyramid on the, the let's not act on this side of the conversation, who has now come over and is one of the most ardent voices on the, this is a problem, we need to act, here's how we can do it, this is in line with my values as a conservative side of the conversation. And I'm, I'm just excited to see who the next convert is going to be. Daniel Palkin, who I suspect will win lots of converts as he closes out this edition of Bionic Planet. If you like the show and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com 
forward slash bionic planet. And that wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.